Tonight I want to talk about uh, a specific aspect of the teachings, something that Steve spoke of a bit last night, and that is anatta, or the fact that there's no one here doing all of this. And uh, I really want to look at it from the way of deconstructing in our experience this sense of self that seems so solid. Someone asked the Buddha once, you know, what is the one thing that liberated ones know that we don't, that makes them different? And he said, um, knowing that nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Nothing. So that if we really knew that, we would be liberated. And this whole dilemma we seem to find ourselves in of struggling with this sense of me and mine and self and no self and all of that really can be experienced very simply as the result of clinging or grasping in the moment or not. Now, I know that often when we begin to talk about anatta, which is usually translated as no self, there's a kind of inward groan or the mind kind of, okay, that's not for me checks out. I can never know that, you know. We know that. And or else the mind really starts, okay, let's hear this. How can there be no me if, you know, if there's no me, who decided to come here? If there's no me, who's eating dinner, you know, and all of that. So what I want to do tonight is hopefully not talk about this as a philosophical reference or philosophical point, but as an investigation into Um, an invitation into investigating our own moment-to-moment experience. Because a lot of times um, we get the sense or people talk about how I have to destroy the ego. I have to get rid of my ego or something. As if to understand anatta means we somehow change. But it's just as with impermanence. It's not that everything's been permanent, and then when you understand impermanence, suddenly everything's changing. That's how it is. Things are changing. It's the same with anatta. Nothing changes except our perception, our point of view. It's already true. I hate to tell you this, but it's not like you have to destroy something that exists in order to discover anatta. It's already true. It's the way things are. So... Realizing anatta doesn't mean you cease functioning. We're all functioning more or less fine. Actually, we probably function a little better once we stop referring everything back to this concoction of experience that we cling to and call self. So that said, and I'm sure the mind's still whirring away, that said, (laughs) I want to use the model that Ajahn Buddhadasa, this Thai... um, master forest monk that I think we've referred to on this retreat uses to talk about rather than getting into this big big deconstruction model or trying to think our way out of it just to begin to tune in to when there's a sense of me and when there's not. He He calls the moments when there's no big sense of me the word in Pali is shunyata usually translated as emptiness, or in his translator translated as voidness. But moments that are, as Steve said last night, empty of any separate self. And it's interesting because in Thailand too, when Buddha Dasa was writing about really becoming content with voidness is the way he described it. And he said when he first started teaching, Back in the 30s and 40s in Thailand, he said that although anatta is really one of the three characteristics, it's one of the core teachings of the Buddha, the liberation teachings, right? He's not just teaching for the heck of it. They're teachings to liberate us from suffering. And Buddha Dasa said, even so, in Thailand, which is a Buddhist country, mostly to lay people, um, anatta wasn't taught very much. And he said when he started teaching it, you know, the monks would say, well, no, no, don't teach that to lay people. They can't understand it, you know, very well. And that was sort of the held belief. And he said, you know, forget it. 
Of course people can understand it. This is the one of the liberating teachings. What are we talking about not teaching it? And it's really much more simple. It can be approached in a way, experientially, that makes it much more simple than when we get so caught in thinking about it. So, as Buddha Dasa talks about it, the moment when there's no particular strong sense of me or mine, a moment of emptiness, so to speak, is very normal and natural. It happens many, many times in one day. We look sometimes for such, uh, you know, bells and whistles, some ecstatic explosion into unitive experience that never goes away. And until we get that, we don't really notice little nothing special moments when there's that are empty of a grasping or clinging of me or mine. And another reason we often don't notice these moments is just because they are nothing special, you know? Going along, taking a step, nothing. We don't think, wow, a moment of no self. We just think, nothing's happening now. When's lunch? (laughs) When's the next interesting sensation going to arise? This is just pressure. Felt this one, you know? We don't really notice it so much. And what we do notice, just what Steve was talking about last night, is all the concoctions and elaborations and memories and stories that come up around any particular sense experience. We're really entranced by that. And I'll talk more about it, but as he said, you know, we're really just making up a dream and living in it and reacting to it because what's happening is just this. Just this. And the mind that's living in all the concoctions just thinks it wants a little more. So it keeps on spinning out the concoctions and forgets to notice. Ah, just this. That's, I think, why Buddha Dasa talks about really cultivating a contentment with emptiness, a contentment with voidness. That's a lot what our mindfulness practice is taking us into. Experientially, what we can begin to do, rather than thinking about analyzing or philosophically trying to understand anatta, what we can begin to do moment to moment here in practice and also in our daily life is to begin to examine with mindfulness, with the wisdom of mindfulness, truth-discerning awareness at the point of contact when we, be, when we feel the presence of a sense of I or mine. So in other words, rather than just standing on the side and waiting for it to go away, begin to explore what we're taking for granted as an ongoing sense of me, I, always in the background. Vridhidasa um, uses the Pali words, which I really like, ahankara and mamankara, which means eyeing and maying. These are experiences that come and go. Unexamined, of course, it feels like I'm always here. I mean, doesn't it? If you don't really look closely, doesn't it feel like you're always there? Here in the background, seeing, thinking, talking, eating, it feels like me. Without really exploring it, I'd say it was the same me that's always been here. And the more we think about it, the more solid it gets. How can I ever experience a sense of no self? I feel so solid. I'm never going to understand this. I'm never. The more we think, that sense of I is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I used to feel like I was beating my head against a brick wall and I would get into these internal torture sessions with myself about this. How can the sense of I not exist? It's clearly so strong. And of course, the more I was getting fixated on those thoughts, the stronger it got. What we need to do is turn around with our attention and explore the eyeing and myeing itself rather than assuming anything about that experience. So when we turn around in a moment of I and my, what do we see? Now I'm going to tell you, of course, what I see, but I want you to look and see what you see, because my telling you won't do any good if you don't 
take that and turn around and look for yourself. So I really want this whole talk just to be an invitation for all of us to keep doing that over and over and over because it takes seeing it often. The sense, this is Buddha Dasa. It's so simple. The sense of self is merely a condition that arises when there's grasping or clinging in the mind. That's it. That's it. Merely a condition that arises when there's grasping or clinging in the mind. As we have a friend who puts it, I want, I need, therefore I am. That's all. This thing that feels so problematic and troublesome, a condition that arises and passes, not a steady state permanent experience, but it takes our truth discerning awareness, our mindfulness right at the point of the sense of self arising to see that it's a condition that comes and goes. So give you a simple example. The birth of self is born and dies many, many, many times in one day. Seeing that takes it out of the realm of some big steady state thing and just, oh yeah, another thing that comes and goes, just like that knee pain. Really. You don't have to get so reactive to it. Or the knee pain either. So this is a simple example, but it works. I was on a long retreat here at IMS and you know how the mugs are just all in that case there when you walk in. So I retreat for a long time. I'd walk in, take a mug, get my tea, eat my meal, nothing. And after, I don't know, weeks, for some reason, one morning, the mug I took I'd never had before. And it was just happened to be the perfect mug. I still can sort of remember this certain color green, and the grip was just right, and it just fit right on my mouth. And... As I was drinking, I was appreciating what a perfect mug it was, and craving was born. <laughs> so first it's just craving. That's the beginning. There's contact, sense contact. It's pleasant. Craving arises. Sounds familiar? The dependent origination. Out of that craving, not really noticed, it strengthens into grasping, yes, this is a good mug. I want this mug other times. And from being really quite present, just moment to moment, there was really clearly the birth of me, me and my mug. And <laughs> it was really a very different experience from how things had been a few moments before. That was really a birth of self, me and my mug. And from what had been quite relaxed, just going along, there was a sense of complication. What do I do about this now? We have a situation that needs to be dealt with, me and my mug. Things aren't just free-flowing anymore. Well, I managed to notice all that and, with quite some pride, put the mug back on the dish cart and left it alone. So that's an example of birth of self. Putting it back on the dish cart wasn't death of self because there was still pride. Aren't I doing a good job letting go of my mug? It's just that the... Clinging had moved from the mug to the emotion of pride, that's all. <laughs> but that's two different births of self, actually, see, and we don't notice that. That feels like one steady state. So that's really birth of self. That's the whole dependent origination happening right there. Sense contact, pleasant, craving, turning to grasping, which is what Buddha Dasa calls the grasping, the ah, mine, the eyeing and myeing. Both came up, I and mine. And then it moves into having and being, you know, it strengthens into I'm a person who has this mug and I want to continue to be a person who has this mug. What am I going to do about it? So seeing that the birth of self is simply that clinging and all the concoctions that come around it. So I did, I put it back, I went away, but the next meal, morning, whenever it was, things weren't quite so simple. You see the constriction that comes into the mind and heart with the sense of self, with the craving. I was aware that in a subtle kind of background way, I wanted that mug. And I looked for it, and it was there, and I got it. And it was all a little mellower than the day before, but I was really aware of, okay, this time I'm going to hide it. I know everybody hides mugs. LAUGHTER
I know all the tricks. I've been here a long time. You know when a mug disappears and you don't see it for the rest of the three-month course. Somebody's <laughs> nabbed it. And I knew I could do that, and there was plenty of mugs. And I was just watching it. You know how you, you, you kid yourself. You're being mindful. I'm watching all of this, you know. But I really was going to do it until I really saw the constriction, the suffering. It's mild. I mean, this is really small suffering, you know. But this is the suffering of the contraction of I, the clinging. And I really saw, I said, I get it, I don't need this. And that time I really put it down, and that was it. Birth, and that was a moment of death of that particular self. So that's what I mean by really beginning to notice, not with hatred, you know, it helps to laugh at it, it's just another arising experience. But when there's clinging and grasping in the mind, the sense of self arises. And notice, rather than fighting it, turn the attention back onto the experience I'm calling me or the experience of clinging itself. That's how I could notice the restricted quality of mind and heart, how where everything had been spacious and flowing, the world had suddenly shrunk to me, the mug, and everyone else who was the enemy who might get my mug. You know, It's a very different experience from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, spaciousness. So put it down, sense of I disappears, death of the self in that moment. We all experience this birth and death of self many, many times in one day, don't we? But do we notice? We might also notice the birth because there's that more or less subtle sense of clinging. Sometimes we just focus on the thing clung to and we don't notice the sense of me so much. Turn around and notice that. But we often may not notice that moment of the death of the sense of me. Because again, it's just, ah, that's nice. Often it's quite neutral. Those moments where that sense of self has died, nothing particular going on, that's often that neutral moment that we don't notice. So instead of generating a recognition and contentment with emptiness of self in that moment, we're kind of sitting back and going, well, nothing much happened, and now wait for the next arising experience. In other words, the next something that gives me a sense of self again. So we don't notice often the death of the self the sense of self, and those moments of just what is without the extra. So if you're waiting for something to happen very subtly, notice that and begin to notice when the clinging opens up and there's just pure presence again. So what we can explore in our practice, not thinking about it, but whenever there's a moment, like I just described, that mug, or you don't even know what it's about, but you suddenly become aware that I and mine is feeling very present. Or as someone mentioned today, they're just noticing the sense of self more in their practice. Rather than go on a big thing about it, turn the attention around and with investigative light of mindfulness, explore whatever the experience is in that moment that I'm calling me or mine without preconceptions, not like, oh my God, me again, I've got to get rid of this, I've got to figure out who I am. That's already, you're not there anymore. We're lost in thought. It's like, oh, self, turn around and see what that note is labeling. I mentioned in in the group today, I was doing that a lot one time when I was practicing with Sayada Upandita. It'd be about every third note, there'd be sense of self, you know, and I'd just note it. And seeing that each time, it was actually a different experience. It's not the same. There's not, there is not a self sitting back there that we're turning around noting. It's just some experience of grasping. Sometimes, and that's what I want to talk about, the different experiences we grasp at and often don't notice. That's where the sense of self comes from. But anyway, I was sitting with Sayadaw, and in the interview, you're just supposed to describe very specifically what's happening in your sitting, what you're noting. So I tried to describe this, how I'm noting sense of self. Well, it didn't really make it through the translation and through the way they look at things in any kind of clear way. They got hysterical 
the translator inside, I opened it, thinking, oh, ha, ha, she thinks there's a self. She's noting the self. Every third note, she's noting the self. Oh, ha, ha, haven't you, you know, haven't you been practicing for years? Don't you know better than that? <laughs> that was, um, that wasn't my most memorable interview. <laughs> anyway, clinging and grasping, eyeing and mying is simply a habit. And we can begin to explore what's actually going on with that habit just by bringing mindfulness there when we recognize it. So, talking about a few of the experiences which we all know and how the clinging to that experience gives rise to the sense of I and mine. First one, obviously, is the body, our body. And what I have found most helpful, not thinking about it, but taking the attention, and when we are having an experience of feeling we're clinging to our body, to look with awareness and see what's the actual experience that's happening right now that I'm calling my body. Because what I find, if you're just with the bare experience, say your knee's hurting, you know, I think, oh, my knee, like I was saying this morning, my knee is falling off, I need surgery, I'm going to the hospital. Okay, we know that's thoughts already. You can come back to my knee. But what's the actual experience? You're sitting there with your eyes closed, feeling sharpness. What are you actually calling my knee that you're so attached to? What's really happening in awareness at that particular moment? And I've noticed so often, I'll be sitting, there's sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it doesn't really matter. And there's almost for me like a visual, very subtle visual background. I don't know, I might be seeing my whole body. I might be like imagining seeing my knee from the outside or from the inside or not even that clear, but a subtle reference back to some almost pre-verbal, almost pre-image idea of my body. And it's not actually the sensation itself that I'm clinging to, but it's this overlay of subtle image that I'm calling my body. So it's actually more attachment or clinging to an image or a sense or an idea, and come back and look at, in any moment when you think, oh, my body, what am I going to do if I get sick? You know, what if something happens to my kidney and I go off in the whole thing? What's actually in that moment? Am I even connecting with my body? In that moment, for me, it's actually almost completely thought and emotion. My body, well, when I connect, nothing wrong with my kidney. I don't feel anything. That's just some idea going on or there's a simple, unpleasant sensation. And if you move just into the sensation, simply feeling it, twinging, burning, itching, whatever it is, how can we even think of that? If you're just with it, how can I think of that as Carol? I mean, it's not even female or male, you know? Just sensation, does it have an age, that sensation? Is it American, you know? (laughs) Has it gone through all the experiences I think Carol's gone through in my life? It's just an arising and passing sensation, you know. So it gets really interesting to come in. I might be clinging or having aversion to that sensation, but my body? It's a whole idea. Again, don't think about this. (laughs) It won't help. Bring your attention into your actual physical experience. And notice the difference. For example, those really hot days, or today if you were hot, you notice the difference between, ah, I'm so hot. It's so hot. I'm so hot. I'm just a rag. I'm just, you know, all washed up. I can't function. I can't meditate. Ah, it's so hot. And just sensations you might call heat, or it might just be vibrating, or it might just be moisture. There's a huge difference. The sensations didn't really change in those two. The clinging and what we're clinging to is vastly different. So next time you find yourself in some mode of 
I am my body, or I have this body, or I'm saddled with this body, you know, I'm dragging this body through samsara, whatever way you're relating to your body. Stop and bring your attention to the actual experience, the material experience itself. And this is where the mindfulness and the concentration are really helpful. And then see what thoughts, emotions, and storyline around those sensations that were confusing with the physical experience itself. And just notice that without preconceptions. The concentration can be helpful because there are times when you can really experience your body when you're sitting or walking as sensations arising in space. There are times that people report in practice where the sense of body shape and form falls away. It's just the perception anyway, and the perception shifts. And sometimes that's scary for people because it's unfamiliar. Sometimes it's nice for people. Sometimes it's nothing special. It's just a shift in perception. But experiencing that shift in perception from time to time is very helpful because it helps us see that this sense of solid form in space unchanging is just that, a different perception. It's not necessarily the true perception. So one of the things that happens with our mindfulness that we just come to the bare experience free of all the papancha is we can begin to experience how things are underneath. Because the sense of lasting self is really just a misperception. It's all it is. When we begin to perceive in a different way, that sense of me doesn't have such a grip. That's really what's going on in this practice a lot of the time. And a lot of people report just having experiences that are unfamiliar and a little bit of fear. And they'll look back and say, well, I don't know why. There was actually the experience wasn't unpleasant, but somehow there's this fear, just the fear of the unfamiliar, different perception. So, of course, there's the clinging to body, look and see what you're really clinging to, what you're calling body. The second aspect of experience, and we've talked about this quite a bit, that the clinging arises quite easily, is this feeling tone, vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So we've talked about that quite a bit. And as we've said, we, we often don't notice the pleasant or unpleasant quality and get in our, lost in our reaction to the experience. But with this clinging, with the sense of self, uh, I've found for myself often um, in an experience, there can be this clinging and the sense of me arising with the clinging, the contraction around the pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. And you don't really notice it because we're more focused on what it is that's pleasant or unpleasant. Simple example, when you have a good sitting, You know, the breath is just so nice and smooth and you're so present with it and the mindfulness is how you like it. And you're aware of it, you know. And it so often happens we think, well, I know. I know this is going to change. We're telling ourselves the whole time, I know this is going to change. I'm not getting attached, you know. Rising, falling, noting, noting. And often, of course, it changes. And, of course, we found out that somehow we were attached because we're disappointed, you know. It isn't quite so free-flowing. Often the thing, not always, but sometimes the thing we don't see is that we were noticing the experience but not quite noticing the pleasant feeling and the attachment to it. So the sense of I is I am not getting attached to this really nice mindful sitting, you know. And there's the clinging to, the grasping, the I arising in response to my pleasant feeling. So that's another one. And as I mentioned the other night, Buddha Dasa says a lot to just explore the nature of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling because they're so ephemeral, so wave-like that if we really tune in, say, oh, this is such a great experience, my pleasant feeling. Well, when we look at it that way, it kind of, the oomph goes out of it. Oh, yeah, my pleasant feeling, now that one's gone. Oh, yeah, next pleasant feeling, now that one's gone. We quit identifying with it so much, the identification just being that clinging. Now, the next area, the whole area of the mind, thoughts, emotions, concoctions, me story, 
obviously extremely complex, obviously an area where a great deal of the birth and death of the self is happening. And because it's so quick and complex, often unnoticed. In fact, the Buddha said once, he's sort of, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if you must identify with something, if you must think the self is something, better to identify with the body, because at least that's changing more slowly than the mental stuff. The mind is going so quickly. The thoughts and emotions, that, and the whole conglomeration of thoughts and emotions happening together, the formations, the stories, so easy for the sense of me to come in and easy not to notice the impermanent nature of that birth and death of self because they're just flowing one into the other and it can seem very continuous. The continuity is an illusion, but we often don't notice that. So I'll just give some examples. Starting with emotions, just because it's, it's easier to talk about an emotion, I know they often come with thoughts and with our whole life story, but just to start with emotions, I've noticed for myself, first of all, we see in the sitting here how emotions just come and go and come and go. I mean, haven't you been through, how many emotions have you been through on this retreat? You know, and still, there are certain emotions that when they come, we've seen them come and go a million times in our life, but certain emotions, when they come, this is it. This is really me. This is who I am. I've felt like this all day. I've been so sad all day. Or the worthlessness went away for a little while, but really, that's the core of my being, and it's under there all the time, whether I'm aware of it or not. And now it's surfaced again. You know, so there's an assumption that we don't look at. Yes, it's always here. I just don't always notice it, but it's always here. So to begin with, you might notice which emotions can come and go quite fine. And Nietzsche, yes, emotions are just clouds passing through the sky. And which ones are really grasped? Which ones really give birth to a sense of me and mine? My worthlessness, my sadness, my joy my loving kindness, whatever it is, we can grasp at it. Notice when there's a sense, unexamined, I've felt like this all day. This has been going on the whole retreat. And even when it's really intense, I've noticed I could be in really intense grief, coming up a lot during a day, there'll be moments when it's just not there and I'm suddenly bored. Moments when in the midst of the most ecstatic sitting, you're suddenly going, well, that's nice, but when's lunch going to be? I wonder what's happening for lunch today. Oh, yes, I'm about to get enlightened, right? I forgot. You know? Just notice those moments when the continuity of this me emotion isn't there. Noticing the gaps, noticing the coming and going really helps to let go of the grasping to it that gives the sense of self. Or pushing away, it's the same, you know, grasping for it to be gone gets the same sense of me or mine as grasping for it to stay. And then you might notice with certain emotions, there's times when the emotion's just there, say sadness. It's not a problem. You know, we might assume it's the presence of the emotion that interferes with peace the presence of the emotion that makes me feel so solid. But there's plenty of times when there's been sadness, really just coming and going, and there's no particular grasping or reaction. It's no problem. But then suddenly it turns into my sadness. And there's a whole birth of self in that moment that feels very different, much more solid, much more problematic, much more sense of me and my sadness, my whole life history, what to do about it. Really no different from picking up that mug and getting attached. And then there might be another moment where it's, oh, right, the sadness. In that moment of pure mindfulness, when it's with an emotion, very clearly feeling it, but nothing extra, that's also a moment of emptiness. There's no I manufactured around that emotion. So explore this stuff. Now, the whole complex of emotions 
and thoughts and memories and projections. I mean, this happens so quickly, so quickly that from nothing to our whole life history can happen in a tenth of a second. It's really fascinating to watch it, to look. I can remember one time I was doing walking meditation down in the gym. And again, just just present, no sense of self particularly, just walking, really focused. And I just ran my finger under my turtleneck. That's all. Very mindfully ran my finger under my turtleneck. And because I was so present, I could notice this whole stream happening like that. This is like nothing special, right? There was no big pain, no big desire going on. I ran under my turtleneck, had the physical sensation, the image flashed in my mind, you know, a made-up image of what I looked like walking with my turtleneck and my finger under. The thought came, some thought about schlumpy yogi attire, you know, how it gets about two months into the three-month course. We're all just schlumping around in our in our uh, sweatpants. And a sense of, you know, self-image projected out, wondering what other people thought of me, and in that solid sense of me around really that whole quick conglomerate of mental images, thoughts, and then memories. Feeling of contraction, feeling of clinging. Ah, solidity of Carol. It's fascinating to watch that happen. And admittedly, that's really subtle, you know? We don't have to wait for it to be so subtle, but we can explore how the mind does that. One of the ways that the sense of self seems so strong and continuous is that just in that moment I described, the story of Carol starts up, you know, schlumping along in the three-month course, and what do I look like, and how I looked in the past, and how I'm going to look in the future, and how the other yogis look like. And we're telling ourselves like our self-story all day long. We forget to notice that the self-story is constantly changing in response to clinging to different experiences. So one moment, you're the schlump yogi who's just wasting their time and not doing very well and not getting anywhere. And the next moment, somebody goes running by looking really distracted, and we've suddenly become ace yogi, you know, (laughs) headed for Dharamsala, you know, to consult with the Dalai Lama. And it's a whole different series of thoughts and emotions and sensations that are clung to. There's nothing the same about the two series, that sense of clinging and the calling it I. If you turn around and look, it's just clinging, arising, and falling, arising, and falling, thoughts and emotions arising and falling. But we don't stop and say, well, there's the schlump me, and then there's the ace yogi me, and then there's the wise me, and then there's the... I mean, and if we do do that, we start to think we're really going crazy, you know. (laughs) Oh, my God, there's so many me's in there. None of them are. They're just arising, clinging to specific conglomerations of thoughts and emotions. And if you can just notice that, I I have like, you know, commentary, self-story going on in my mind a great part of the day. You might notice that. I don't know if everyone has it, but now she's doing the dishes, now she's scraping the dishes so mindfully, now she clunked them down and made a loud noise, now she's walking, lifting, moving. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But if you see it, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. It does not have to be clung to. The biggest self-story going is just more thoughts and emotions coming and going. It doesn't have to be clung to. And then it's not self. It's just thoughts. I'll give you an example. I think this was from the same retreat. I'm not sure. But I was sitting in my room, and I'd been sitting for some weeks, and just sitting and kind of noticing what was happening, And I coughed a little, and I was just noticing and noticing sensations, tickling, tickling, burning, burning, coughing, coughing. And then that was going on for some time, nothing, just sensations coming and going. And then this thought arose, oh, this feels like bronchitis, which I'd had a couple of times already that winter, quite seriously. That's the thought coming and going. Then the thought came, oh, my God, this feels like bronchitis. (laughs) Really strong birth of self in that moment, attachment to that thought. And from that thought, immediately, panic. 
like total panic. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I got so sick before, I can, I have to leave in a week, I have to teach here, I have to go there, I have no time to have bronchitis, I cannot deal with this, I can't, and went, totally. And I thought, okay, what's happening here? Tickle, tickle, cough, cough, thinking, thinking, that's really all that was happening. And the whole panic completely went away, the whole sense of me, there's the death of the self again, the sensations coming and going, thoughts coming and going. And I really saw we have a choice where to let the mind dwell. And what's so interesting is how often we choose to dwell in suffering. Because I saw that I could really just stay with the sensations and there was absolutely no problem. But my mind would say, yeah, but bronchitis. And it would want to jump back there. There's a... a a line Ajahn Buddhadasa uses, he calls it volunteering for suffering. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, my mind's volunteering for suffering here. It could stay with this, but no, what if it's bronchitis? Oh my God, you know, and back into the suffering. And I went back and forth, back and forth. It actually got fun because you could see birth of self, self death of self, birth of self, death of self. And this, back to the barbershop question this morning, does not mean that if I'm not caught in clinging to, oh my God, bronchitis, tickle, tickle, cough, cough. It doesn't mean I couldn't still tell if it was bronchitis, because actually it was. I could tell that, and I could take appropriate action. All of that could happen without panic. Oh my God, bronchitis, me, my past history, my future history, my whole life, what's going to happen? Just staying with what is. The functioning just arises doing what's obvious. It doesn't have to have all this clinging and self-story in it, you know. So that's an example of how quick and fast all the conglomerations of thought and feeling and memory and history and emotion, so solid. But if instead of trying to think your way out of it, you simply take your attention back to the feeling of panic, the feeling of clinging, that simple contraction itself don't try to think about what am I calling self. Turn it to the contraction and just, oh yeah, grasping. It goes. Let it go. Nothing to hold on to there. It's really quite interesting. A couple of other very subtle things we, the sense of clinging comes to that really feels like self because they're so subtle. Um, I just want to mention them, drop them in as something to explore in your practice. Again, please, if you notice your mind getting into a lot of thinking about it, just notice that we cling to that thinking. The sense of self gets strong, and we think, well, of course, this can't be true, because the more I think about it, the more solid I am, so that's baloney. Just notice that. Come back to experience. One is what we've talked about the last couple days, the experience of intention that, you know, intending to move, intending to eat a bite of food, intending to stand up. It's a subtle thing, often not noticed at all, right? And of course, unnoticed, if you say, who's standing up? Well, I am, you know, what kind of a stupid question is that? Who decided to come here? You know, who's eating? When we can begin to have the mind quiet enough that we notice just that movement, that intention, before scratching an itch, say, we can begin to see that the intention itself is a mental event that arises and passes. So you can really see the cause and effect nature of it, which takes it out of the realm of being me. So it's very to take a very simple example, itching when you're sitting, unpleasant sensation, gives rise to aversion, Aversion gives rise to the desire to move, to scratch the itch, right? It's all cause and effect. There's not some me in there, you know, all seeing, having that intention. The intention arises as a result of causes. There might then be also in that moment mindfulness, wisdom, that sees that intention and sort of has the intention not to act on it, so you don't. Another moment there's not mindfulness, wisdom, and you know how You've watched the intention ten times and suddenly you're scratching and you don't know how that happened. Or you're walking very thoroughly, very committedly, and suddenly you find yourself in the dining room having a cup of tea and you don't know how that happened. 
you were really committed to the walking meditation, but somehow here I am. Intention arising unnoticed, and it feels like me. When we notice it, there's not necessarily any clinging. You can act or not, but there's not that identification, that clinging, that contraction around the intention. Another, and this is even more subtle, is the mindfulness, the moments of consciousness themselves, that moment of knowing, you know, we say when the sound arises and it's quite spontaneously known, the hearing happens. But if we say, well, if I think about it, well, who knows? (laughs) Who I know, obviously. It's very easy because the consciousness, the knowing is so subtle to notice that it arises and falls takes the mind to be quite quiet, uh, even to notice consciousness at all. You know, the mind needs to be a little quiet. So please don't try to puzzle this out. But in times when you're really aware of both the sensation and the knowing of it, right? If you're unconscious, the sensation can happen and we don't know it, right? If you're unconscious or asleep and there's a loud sound, you don't hear it. So the knowing is that consciousness, that presence, that wakefulness, Prior to thought or verbalization, consciousness is simply the knowing of sound. It's not, oh, that's a robin calling. That's more than consciousness. Consciousness is just that knowing quality. When our mind is quiet, we can play with turning attention to that and begin to see also. It's not steady state and it's not me. But when we're feel like we're noticing everything coming and going, coming and going. We're not, we're not clinging. We really feel like that. But still, there's this subtle feeling of eyeing and mying somewhere in the background. Turn around and notice that. Sometimes what the contraction of self is around, the clinging, is just that subtlety of knowing. So whenever you notice the feeling of self, Turn around with awareness, land on the feeling itself, the experience itself. It may be physical kind of contraction. I feel it that way. It may be more subtle than that. But turn around and notice what it actually is in that moment, not thinking about it. And this is going to happen, this birth and death of eyeing and myeing, many, many times in one day. There'll also be many, many moments when there's not the sense of self. So it's not so much that we have to take some dynamite and blast away this thing, self. It's more just beginning to see its impermanent, illusory nature, that a rapidly changing experience, actually many, many different rapidly changing experiences, because of our lack of investigation and our misperception, we're taking for granted a continuity that is not there. And so then when I feel now, when I feel like really solid Carol, it's just another experience coming and going. It's not, oh my God, I am so strong again. Uh, It's so humiliating. What am I going to do about it? Okay, sense of self. Just another arising experience, just like anger, just like pain, just like hearing. And when you take away that kind of... um, explosive, reactive quality we can have around it, then we can actually explore it in a much more balanced and spacious way. So the sense of self is merely an appearance that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. And so what follows on that, as the Buddha said, as Buddha Dasa elaborates on, It means that nothing is worth clinging to. I mean, we'll still cling, mind you, but nothing's worth it. That means nothing. That means not any of the things I've mentioned. It means not our mindfulness. It means not clinging to wisdom. It means not clinging to views of practice. It means not clinging to any idea whatsoever of who we think we are. It's the clinging itself that creates the separation, the sense of isolation, the misperception that keeps us in this wheel of suffering over and over. 
What's also true is that in many moments, we all have that potential to recognize and generate that contentment with emptiness, that contentment with no sense of self. And it's important that we also begin not to overlook these times, to realize that, again, you don't have to wait until you're, you know, some incredibly deep, deep state of concentration. There are sometimes very strong experiences of uh, emptiness that really can blast away a lot of our conditioning. That's true. But you don't have to wait for that because the fact that there's no ongoing self is true now, every moment, no matter what your experience is. And we can begin to notice those moments when that's more evident. And as I said before, I think one of the reasons it's a little difficult to notice those moments is because there's so nothing special. We get more interested in things, and it's harder in a way to be open to the spaciousness of nothing special. In fact, I found as a metaphor, um, the metaphor of space as a way to generate a contentment with emptiness can be very helpful at times. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He's talking about space. He's saying, is knowing the unconditioned, which is a word for nirvana, is that very interesting or fascinating? You might think, I'd like to know God or Dhamma. It's going to be an incredibly fascinating thing to know, something blissful and ecstatic. So you look in your meditation for that kind of experience. You think that getting high is getting close. But, he says, the unconditioned is as interesting as the space in this room. Look at the space in this room. Is it very interesting to look at? He says, it's not to me. The space in this room is like the space in the other room. The things in this room, the people in this room, they be good, bad, beautiful, ugly, they're interesting, they're uninteresting, but the space, what is it? There's nothing you can really say about it except that it's spacious. And to be able to, as there's nothing one can grasp in space, the only way one recognizes it is by not clinging to the objects in the room. That's what allows us to recognize the space. So when you let go, when you stop your absorptions, your judgments, your criticisms and evaluations of the people and the things in the room, you can begin to experience the space of it. But that takes a lot of patience and humility. And I've noticed uh, in my own practice, at times, almost a discomfort with spaciousness. Spaciousness, which just means non-clinging. I noticed one time, I was doing self-retreat somewhere in California, sitting outside, and there's a very vast, spacious view, which is actually a nice way of kind of bringing in that spaciousness, just as we do with the hearing meditation, where things are just coming and going, the sounds in space. There's not such a tendency to glom on. So there was a spacious view. I was sitting with my eyes opening, just being aware of space. And then I noticed there were four horses Teensy tiny. I mean, I guess they were normal size, but they were in the distance. They looked teensy tiny, way down in the back, moving around. You could hardly see them, you know, in proportion to the vastness of the view. But I would notice that my mind or my attention would continually be drawn to those horses. What are they doing? Are they moving? It's like fixated on the horses. And when I'd notice that, it was really a kind of grasping. Go, oh, right. Ah. And the next moment, the mindfulness would fall away and zoom, glommed back onto those little teensy horses. And I've noticed often a kind of uh, a little bit of uncomfortableness without this sense of relating, without this sense of fixating on something. Just as, as Ajahn Sumedho say, my conceptions and our points of view and all the things we think and say and do about each arising thing. Just to let it be there in the space without attaching special significance to something was a little bit unsettling, a little bit uncomfortable 
That's just a habit of mind. So playing with this sense of spaciousness, whether it's actually noticing space, whether it's being with hearing. Spaciousness doesn't mean spaced out. It doesn't mean indifferent or disconnected. It's simply the quality of non-grasping. And you can be spacious and also be very precise. It also doesn't mean, that's why space is only a metaphor. It's not an exact description. If there's total precise attention with anything, in anything, inside a sensation of breath, inside an emotion, inside what's happening, in that moment, isn't it true, there's no reference back to anything else. There's just only the purity of that moment. There's no past, no future. There's no sense of anything else. That's also a quality of pure presence, non-clinging. Very, very present and nothing else. So in a way, it's total space as well, if you get a sense of what I mean. Just to let you know, it doesn't mean you have to only look at the sky and you can't notice what's happening. It's that quality of grasping, discomfort with nothingness, with emptiness. And just begin to notice that. Play with the spaciousness. So from Sumedho, just to end. In your meditation now, as you incline towards the emptiness of the mind, towards the spaciousness of the mind, just incline to stillness and not taking something up and making something of it. Just letting things be as they are. As you incline towards spaciousness, towards stillness, your habitual grasping, fascination, revulsions, fears, doubts, and worries, all of that stuff that we get so fascinated by, about the conditions lessen. You begin to recognize they're just things that come and go. They're not self, nothing to get excited about or depressed about. They are as they are. We can allow conditions to be just as they are because they come and go. Their nature is to go away, so we don't have to make them go away. We're free and patient enough to allow things to take their natural course. In this way, we liberate ourselves from struggle, strife, and the confusion of an ignorant mind that has to spend all its time evaluating and discriminating, trying to hold on to something, trying to get rid of something. Just things are as they are. The experience of eyeing and mying is simply another condition that is as it is. Turn our attention to it rather than fighting with it, struggling with it, or avoiding it, and see that this too is simply a condition that arises and passes, nothing to take up and make something of. And this leads us not into some kind of nihilistic life where you know nothing matters but just the reverse and allows for the depth of compassion and connectedness because really all the suffering all our wanting and fearing is from this sense of ongoing unchanging self that I have to protect all the time so just there's a lovely quote if I can find it from Padampa Samgye Once you really understand emptiness, it would be absurd to do anything harmful. When you realize emptiness, compassion arises with it simultaneously. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
So thank you for your attention. And we just like to... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.